Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at just the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And, and the, the title of this, the sermon this morning is Fear and Fools in the House of God. Fear and Fools in the House of God. So in Ecclesiastes thus far, what we've seen broadly is that life in, in, this, in this place, on this earth, life under the sun has been given to us and is to be viewed as a gift, right? It's, it's to be lived in light of God. It, it's gift. It, it's for us to enjoy as we go through. It's to, for us to find joy in life as we live it. Instead of what, what he's showing the folly of or the vanity of is those who view life as, as a means of gain in hopes of, of having something to say for ourselves at, at the end when we die. And he's saying that's vanity, because life isn't for gain, and if you pursue it for gain, you're always going to come up short. And so last week, we looked specifically at the multiple causes of, of unhappiness under the sun. And at the end of chapter 4, it, it closed with a focus specifically on the, the benefit of relationships, that life under the sun is made to be lived in relationship, and, and the dangers of living life alone, the dangers of selfishness. That, that's what we looked at at the end of chapter 4. And so it's in this context that, that chapter 5 picks up on, on the same thought in, in line of the worship of, of self, or specifically at the end of chapter 4, the, the worship of mammon or the worship of money or gain. Now he's transitioning to the worship of God. So, so it's been worship of self, and now he's saying, well, well, let's talk about when you come to worship God, because even there we are required to take guard and to be be cautious as we worship God. And so in these verses, the preacher or the teacher, he's going to, to lay the rails for, for two paths um, simultaneously as they come to worship God. And, and the path, the first path he's going to lay out is the path of the fool. And the second path is the, the path of the one who fears God or the wise person. He doesn't say the wise person, but that's, that's what he intends you to, to see. And so in these verses, he's going to contrast these two ways the way of the fool and the way of the one who fears God. And these verses, uh, they, they should function as a warning, a wake-up call. Because in these seven verses, there are four admonitions. There's four admonitions that the, the preacher is going to call you to. And these admonitions are to point us to God in our worship. Worship is about God and not self. He's going he's to work that out in these four admonitions. And so, so I want us to hear the words of the preacher this morning. I want us to hear what he's saying, but more importantly, I want us to to heed the words of the preacher. It's one thing to hear, it's another thing to heed, right? I want you to hear and then put the words into action. And I want me to put the words into action. I don't know if this was you today, you don't have to admit it if it was, but I've often heard it said, and maybe I've experienced this personally, that some of the loudest and most heated arguments among families happens on the way to church on Sunday mornings. So thankfully, we don't live very far away, um, <laughs> But you, you have this, this scenario where, where there's parents yelling at the kids, get your, tuck your shirt in, put on a different shirt, iron your pants, get in the car, we're going to worship God. Right? You have parents who, who, are, who are at their wits end with their kids who don't listen. Or you have husbands and wives arguing about silly things like, like spilled coffee or an insensitive remark. You have, I can't believe this, I can't believe you did that, or I can't believe you said that, or I can't believe this happened. And those arguments often tend to happen right on Sunday morning as you're on your way to church. And, and what's, 
what's amusing or fascinating is that often these arguments magically disappear as soon as the door opens in the church parking lot. Or if you're in a big church, by the time you get to the front doors, right? Maybe it, maybe it works itself out a little bit longer through the parking lot. But when you get around people, it just magically it's gone. And, and now I'm happy and I'm smiling. Everything's okay. And these arguments, what they do is they reveal that sometimes it can feel like there's a disconnect between who we are on Sunday morning before we get to church and who we are when we're at church on Sunday morning. So, so there's a tension there. So, so am I really the person who's arguing or who's angry, who's ill-tempered, or am I really the person who's smiling, acting like everything's fine? There's, there's a tension. There can be a disconnect. We can be short, irritable, unloving, angry, only to show up at church and begin the show. I'm happy, I'm smiling, as if I don't have a care or struggle in the world. And this disconnect, these two versions of ourselves ought to give us pause and should force us to ask, who am I really? Am I the person who is irritable and angry? Or am I the person who's patient and joyful? And this matters, and I use this illustration, it matters because, as we're going to see, our worship of God ought to be seen in every aspect of our lives. Our worship of God, our lives before Him, should not be compartmentalized as if there's a spiritual or a sacred at church or Bible study or with certain friends, and then there's a secular when I'm, when I'm at work or when I'm not at church. That, that, does not, that, does not, that does not compute in the biblical teaching. We are to worship God complete, completely and fully. And we come to Him bare in worship and in life. We are totally His, 24-7-365. In fact, this was the foundation of Israel's relationship with the Lord. If, if you remember the greatest commandment, Jesus references Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And what shall you do? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Nothing less will do. So the call of Israel, the call of God's people, is to worship him fully. The the, the same is true of us. God calls undivided us to worship undivided him. One author, David Gibson, explains, real faith and trust in God are not compartmentalized. He is not looking for people who can give him their strength, mending the church roof or serving on short-term missions, while their greatest loves and deepest desires are directed elsewhere. It should not be. And so we don't want to be the fool who, who just goes through the motions and worships God perfunctorily and mechanically. We want to, or we should want to, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should want to worship God truly and wholly with all that we are. And so I think these verses help move us a little closer to making that a reality. I should say that, that, that there will always be a disconnect this side of eternity. There will always be a disconnect. We'll always be, be fighting and, and moving towards wholly worshiping God. But I think these verses are going to help push us a little closer in that way. So l- let me read. You can follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to read the first seven verses, then I'll pray for us. So Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. 
It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Lord, I I ask that these verses would instruct us and would encourage us and would compel us to lives of holistic worship. We live before you bare and exposed. And Lord, I want that to be a comfort and encouragement to us because you are a merciful God who has sent your son for us and given us your spirit so that we might honor you and live lives that please you, lives of worship. And so I pray that that would would be the result of this time together. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, so, so as we work through these four sections, we're going to just work through the four admonitions. That's how it's broken down. The four admonitions are going to be the four points of this message. So in verse 1, first admonition, guard your steps. So that'll be the first point, verse 1. Then, then the second admonition, be not rash with your words. We see there in verses 2 and 3. Then third, do what you say or vow what you vow, do what you vow, verses 4 and 5. And then finally, watch your mouth. Verses 6 and 7. So we'll work through those as we go. So we'll begin there in verse 1. The first admonition, guard your steps. And so the the author begins, the preacher there in verse 1, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Most translations do have guard your steps, although there's one translation that 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 I appreciate that says, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Right? So, so that, that's what's being conveyed here when he says, guard your steps. Maybe we should put that sign on, on the front outside the sanctuary. Uh, ears open, mouth shut as you enter. Right? That's, what it, that's, that's, that's the idea he's conveying. He, that's what he means. Notice how he fills out the admonition. He says, guard your step or watch your step. And he continues to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And, and so his implication is that as you draw near, as you guard your steps, your focus should be on listening. He says, draw near to listen. Listen as you approach the house of God. It's similar language to that of Deuteronomy 6. You you remember how Deuteronomy 6, the the greatest command begins? Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. So so when we come to the Lord, there's a listening that is required first. And so he says, when you go to the house of the Lord, guard your steps and, and listen. And so the first task of the worshiper, the preacher says, is to draw near to listen. And the listening is directly related to what God has said, right? So we don't draw near just listen to good music or, or motivational talks, right? We draw near to listen to what the Lord has said. And so it's not just listening abstractly, it's listening to God because he has spoken. And so, so, so the call, the admonition, admonition is draw near and listen. One commentator notes that the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ, Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. Have you ever ever wondered, thought about that? Spiritual disciplines, we think about what we do, reading and praying. But he says the primary spiritual discipline is listening. And the preacher would say that the fool, the one who doesn't heed this admonition, is the one who, who doesn't listen, but instead offers what he calls the sacrifice of fools. Which, in the context, in light of what's been said, that the sacrifice of fools. Is, is the sacrifice of those who don't draw near to listen, but who draw near to talk. So the fool is the one who draws near to God only to speak. 
and to talk to God, to be heard. And so the fool doesn't care about God as he or she draws near to the house of God. He or she only cares about getting in and getting out, going through the motions, right? I'm just, I'm just here. I'm going to say what I'm supposed to say. Whatever screens you put on the word, or whatever words you put on the screen, whatever, whatever you read, I'm just, I'm just going, to, going to hear, and I'm going to talk, and then I'm going to be done. And so, so, so the fool approaches with insincerity. Insincerity governs the fool. And the, and the preacher is saying, don't be the fool. Guard your steps. Watch your steps. Don't let your approach to God and worship be marked by lack of intentionality or insincerity. And so the fool is used to doing what they're doing. They don't even know that they're doing evil, verse 1 says. Did you notice that? They don't even know that they're doing evil. They're so callous and so used to what they're doing, they just come and they do what they do. They offer their sacrifice. They say what they're supposed to say and then they leave. And they don't even know that it's a great offense to God, that they are simply going through the motions. The fool doesn't care. So the fool doesn't draw near to listen. The fool in his sacrifice is the careless observance of religion, unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul and enacted out of custom, peer pressure, or habit. That's the fool. The fool would be sitting here this morning and not have even thought about a word that's been said or sung so far. I won't test you, but do you know when we sing songs, they are chosen intentionally to lead you in your worship of God. And so you should think about the words. I, I get it, right? We're distracted people. Maybe you had a hard weekend and you, you wander off. But you should think about the words that you sing because your audience isn't primarily those sitting beside you. Your audience is the Lord himself. That's why words and lyrics are important. And I care about them. It's a great responsibility to lead people in what they're going to sing about God. I mean, that, that's a big responsibility. And so I don't want you to be fools. I don't want to be a fool going through mindless traditionalism devoid of any genuinely Godward movement of the soul. I don't want that. That's how churches die. We'll say more about this later, but let me just say right now, don't be the fool. Don't be the fool. Why are you here? Why were you here last week and the week before? Why were you here five years ago? Some of you 30 years ago. Why? Why are you still here? If your answer is not primarily that you want to hear from God and grow in your love for him and relationship for him, you, you might want to rethink things. I'm glad you're here, let me say that. But you should be here to hear from the Lord and to worship him. That's the first admonition. Second admonition there in verses two and three. Verse two, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And so context, again, here's the same. It's, it's as one engages in the worship of God in the temple, in his house. And the fool, not only does he not guard his step, but the fool is also rash with his mouth. And his heart utters, or her heart utters, hasty words. And so not only do, does he not even think about what he's doing, but he also doesn't even think about what he's saying. There, there's a rashness. The result... It, the picture being painted here of, is, is that this fool, pardon my language, but this fool has a case of diarrhea of the mouth. And so the, the fool just, just comes in and just speaks, doesn't even think about what he's saying or she's saying, just, just speaks to be heard. And the speech never stops. He doesn't know that he doesn't have anything to say. Or he, doesn't know that every, he doesn't know that he doesn't have to say everything that comes to his mind. This is the fool. And so notice verse 3, 
Just like the person who's always busy, here's the analogy that, that he brings up here in verse three and then again in verse seven. But just like the person who's always busy, as in toiling after aimless gain, that person who's always trying to find the next thing, that person has nonstop dreams and ideas of how to get what he wants. You know, that's a, oh, let me tell you about this idea. Let me tell you about this. And so the dreams are unending. He says, so too is the fool with his words. There's no lack of words for the fool, just like there's no lack of ideas or dreams for the one who's a workaholic. Fools are verbose, is what the preacher is saying. And his point in connection with verse 1 is that when my words are all that I hear, whose words are you missing? Draw near to listen. If I draw near to listen and all I do is talk, I can't hear. That's his point. When my words are all that others are hearing or all that I'm hearing, I'm preventing myself and others from hearing his words. Another problem with the fool's many words and rashness with words is the fact that the fool doesn't seem to recognize that there's a difference between him and God. Right? That, that's, that's, that's that, do you notice that phrase there? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. He doesn't say, let your words be few so there's time for your words to get to God in heaven. That's not what he means. He means there's a distance, a difference, a separation. God is God and you are not. Who do you think that you are, you are to be able to approach this God and tell him what things are like or how things should be? You are on earth, a created being. He is God. You ought to listen because he has spoken. So stop talking, the preacher would say. There's a difference. God is in heaven. We are on earth. Who do we think we are to be the ones talking? Don't we recognize that his words are what we need? He doesn't need our words. We need his. Therefore, says the preacher, let your words be few. His third admonition there in verse 4. Third admonition in these final two. So he, he's transitioning from the first two admissions to now the, the final two. There's a transition from listening to God and using minimal words, and now he's going to focus specifically on, on how and when you should use words to talk to God. So these final two are focusing on how you should talk to God. So look there at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And so the context here, the Old Testament context, it wouldn't be abnormal for a vow or a free will offering. If you look in, in several places in Leviticus, there's when you offer a vow or a free will offering. These aren't required, but these are free for the Israelites to offer. They could go and, and make a, a, a vow to the Lord or offer a free will offering. They're not mandated, but they could offer it freely. And it wouldn't be uncommon for them to, to offer a sacrifice, whether it was an animal or, or money. And they, they would say, I will offer this if... God answers this prayer. And so, and so yeah, I will, I will freely give this, Lord. Please do this on my behalf. Please answer my prayer. And so when the prayer would be answered and the Lord granted their request, the temptation was what? I already got what I wanted. I haven't really parted with the, the animal or the money. Maybe I could just keep it until next time. Right? So that's a temptation. So he's saying, when you make a vow, you better pay it. Don't delay. Don't, don't say something to God and then not do it. That's, that's his point. Pay what you vow. Now, it's not required. To, Jesus will use the same, address a similar situation. It's not required. So he's not saying you, you, have to, you have to vow. You have to make vows. But he says if you're going to vow, you better pay it. Or the alternative, what he said would be better, it's better just not to vow at all, to be careful with your words. And let them be few. And don't just go making vows that you're not going to keep. Now, we don't make many vows here at church. 
Um, but the idea here is simple, and it definitely applies here. Don't tell God you're going to do something if you're not going to do it. Don't, don't say something. Simplicity is the key here. The fool says lots of things but doesn't follow through. The fool does. He says things that he doesn't mean or ever intend to follow, follow, follow through on. And so when we talk about God, we make vows or promises to him, we better do what we say because saying it and not doing it is far worse than never saying it in the first place. And so I, I don't know if examples are coming to your mind, but as I thought through this, it's like the, the, the desperation prayers or the foxhole prayers. Get me out of here alive or save me from this situation. Just help this circumstance or, or don't let this happen. Don't let a spouse die or don't let this happen to my child. I mean, and these are good prayers, right? These are earnest desires, but it's often followed with, if you, if you answer, if you save this, if you work a miracle, I'll never miss another Sunday at church ever again. I'll never not tithe again. Or I'll pray and read my Bible every day for as long as I live. Right? Which again, well-meaning, but that's not going to happen. And so when you, when you make a vow that you can't keep, you're deceiving the Lord and lying, and that angers him, it says. To say things that you can't do or don't intend on doing anger the Lord, it says. The preacher is saying it's better to keep silent. Don't vow something. Plead with the Lord. Ask him to work, but don't say, if you do, then I will, because you put yourself on the hook and you better do what you say. It's better to keep silent before the Lord than to let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. Because you're not dealing with a person, you're dealing with the Lord, and he knows and doesn't forget. Which leads to the final admonition, which is connected. There, verse 6, watch your mouth. Verse 6, this last admonition, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Right? So that, that's what's just happened. It's led you into sin. You've said something, you've promised something that you then don't follow through on. And he continues, right, the sin, the, 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 the dive into sin goes deeper because he says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hand? And so the messenger here, it's not an angel, right? This word is sometimes used as, as angels, but, but most likely here's the, the, the priest or the temple worker, the attendant, who would have been like the tithe police or the vow police. Right? He would have, so, so when you made a vow, it was a very public thing and everyone would have known it. And so there would have been a, a messenger or a temple worker who would have said, oh, hey, hey, remember last time? Remember you, you said that if the Redskins won the Super Bowl, then, then you'd never not pay double tithe again? Well, guess what happened? The Redskins, where's your vow? Right? And so he's saying, don't let, don't, don't vow something you're not going to do, and then say before the messenger, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. It was a mistake. You misheard. I said win the Super Bowl every year for the rest of my life. It, it, that hasn't happened yet. Right? So don't, don't lie to the messenger. Right? So that's, that's your mouth leading you into sin. Not only do you say something to the Lord, that you don't do, but then when you're approached about it, you, you lie even further. It was a mistake. When you know good and well, when you made the vow, it was not a mistake. And so God's anger, says the preacher, is aroused by that kind of lying and foolish talk. The worshiper that God is seeking is the one who says what he means and who means what he says. This is, in fact, the same line of teaching that Jesus would use in, say, for instance, in Matthew 5. 
And he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything further is what? Evil or comes from the evil one. I remember as a kid, what, what does that mean? Your yes be yes and your no be no. But, but think about it. Why, why do you say or why do I say or why do people say, I promise or I'm telling the truth or believe me, I swear, right? We, we preface statements or facts with these words because we either want to convince you that I'm definitely telling the truth about this, although sometimes I don't, you, but you should believe me this time, I promise, or we use these statements to try and convince you that even though I am lying, I want you to believe I'm not lying, right? I want to try and convince you to believe my lie. And so that's not a yes, yes, and a no, no. A yes being yes and a no mean no, saying yes, this is what happened. No need for further clarification. No need for overemphasis. This is what happened. I'm a truthful person, and you can take my yes as yes, or a no as no. It's simple, and it guards against this foolish talk. If my yes was yes and my no was no, I wouldn't have to add any qualifiers. And so the admonition is not to let your mouth lead you into sin. And in verse 7, the same analogy is, is it resurfaces. In verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. There's futility. There's uselessness. But, as he closes, God is the one you must fear. And so that's where there's fools in the house of God with, without listening and much talk and saying things they can't do. But the contrast to that vanity, very simple, the last statement of this passage God is the one you must fear. And so the fear of God is the remedy against foolish talk and, and being the fool in the place of worship. Now, it doesn't mean by saying fear God that we must be afraid or, or frightened or scared by God. That's not what he means. Rather, fear of God, in a sense, means that we revere God. We stand in awe of him. And we come into his presence characterized by reverence an appropriate approach to the God of the universe. And so this fear of God that he's calling for, if you remember in, uh, earlier in Proverbs, Solomon would say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so life of wisdom is, is centered on or is based upon this fear of God. And so this fear of God is, is the heart attitude that must accompany everything we do, not just here in this place of corporate worship, but the fear of God is what governs and accompanies my entire life in the car on the way to church and in the parking lot and in the workplace and in the bedroom and in the neighborhood the, at the playground, wherever we are, the fear of God should accompany us wherever we go. And so to fear God, one commentator explains, is to recognize his might and his majesty. It's to acknowledge that he is in heaven and we are on earth, that he is God and we are not. When we come to fear God in this way, we will come to worship with expectancy and awe. We will be ready to listen to what he says. We will be careful what we say, and we will give God what he deserves, including whatever time or talent or treasure that we have promised to give. In other words, as the preacher closes this section, he does so by summarizing his main point, which is that the cure for many words, the cure for foolishness, the solution for folly in the worship of God is the fear of God. He is the one who's in heaven who knows your words and sees your hearts. He is the one that cannot be fooled. And he is the one who desires you to worship him wholly, completely, heart, soul, and might. And so I want to close with just three applications, just as we work back. In fact, 
I thought about doing this, but then I thought you would accuse me of taking the easy way out. The points of application could simply be those main points, the admonitions. So, so, so if you don't like what I'm about to say, take those instead. Right? Those are great admonitions. But, but here, there's three points of application just as, as, we, as we reflect on these verses. And the first one is simply the first admonition, to draw near to listen. To draw near to listen. So, so I want to emphasize the preacher's emphasis on listening, not talking so, so the preacher wants us to let the silence be present as we approach the Lord. As we approach him, we should let silence be there. I think this goes for approach and practice on Sunday mornings when we come to church. I, I think that there should be an expectancy that characterizes our entrance into this place. I'm not saying you can't be friendly and, and welcome brothers and sisters and talk and, 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 and fellowship. I'm not saying that, but there should be, wherever we go, Whatever we do, an expectancy that when we gather with God's people, that we're going to hear from God himself. There should be an expectancy. I mean, how many of us actually came here this morning expecting to hear from him? Anticipating. Good, I see that hand. Drawing near, right? How many came for the purpose of hearing from God? If you're here and you didn't draw near expecting to hear from him, the preacher would want to know why. This is, this is one day a week that the people of God have set aside, have sanctified for the worship of God. And you come here week after week. We, we, don't, we don't change the date or the time. And we gather for the explicit purpose of worshiping God, and we worship Him by listening. So prayers and scripture readings and lyrics and sermons and communion tables. These are all ways that God speaks. And so I simply would ask, are you listening? Do you draw near to listen or do you just come because that's what you always do? Sometimes because God is gracious, he speaks even when we're not expecting. We should be thankful for that. But if we come expecting, draw near to listen, I'm afraid that we would hear a lot more than we hear normally. But I think this admonition goes, goes further than just the corporate gathering. I think it goes for us personally as well. Do you practice listening? I mean, when's the last time that you sought the voice of the Lord and waited? Waited patiently for his response. Do you have habits or practices that make space for the Lord to speak? Do you hear the Lord? Do you listen for his voice? I don't, I don't mean this to be a mystical thing. I don't expect you to be silent and hear a, 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 an audible voice of God communicating to you. I think that happens. That's definitely not the norm. We do this primarily. We listen and we hear from the Lord primarily by, by going to his word, by spending time in his word. Because in scripture is where God has committed to speak to us. He has spoken to us in his word. I mean, Hebrews 1, through his son. And his son is the point of this word. And so God speaks to us through his word. And, and so do you read the scriptures expecting to hear from the Lord? Do you read scriptures asking God to speak to you? Do you focus on listening? I mean, as you sit through sermons or listen to sermons on, on the radio or on podcasts, do you focus on listening? The preacher says to you and to me, draw near and listen. Draw near to listen. Second point of application be careful, little mouth, what you say. You guys familiar with that song? I remember it growing up. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. 
for the Father up above is looking down with love. Well, be careful, little one, what you say. And so we should be careful what we say. I mean, James 1.19, this, this could go with the, the, the previous application point and this one, but James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. And he continues, slow to anger, which there's a connection there. <laughs> quick to speak and quick to anger often go together. But James 1.19, be slow to speak. There's great difficulty in controlling your mouth. If you don't think so, just ask someone who knows you. Right? It's hard to control your mouth. Rash words and hasty hearts are all too common even among believers, even among your pastor. Rash words and hasty hearts. This is our, this is our struggle. And we ought to hear the admonition, be careful what you say. Watch your mouth. All of our words matter, every single one. In fact, words are the great revealer of our hearts. I don't think this is part of the song, but it could be said that the heart bone is connected to the jawbone. What you say, what comes out of your mouth, is from your heart. Your heart is revealed by your words. And so we would do well to let our words be few and to learn how to be quick to listen and slow to speak. In these verses, in this context, are... The the context is our words to God, which is the primary focus of this passage, but biblically our words in general, whether to God or to others, are continually to be the the aim of our attention. We've got to be careful what we say to God, certainly, but also what we say to others. What we are saying should be directly related to what we are hearing. There's a connection there. It says, "As as I draw near and listen and I hear from the Lord, my heart is filled and overflows with words that I've heard from the Lord and truth and encouragement and edification. And so is more coming out of you than is going in? Are you short of hearing but long of talking? This shouldn't be. We should be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then finally, the final point of application this kind of the, the big picture, fear of God application, um, which simply, I think maybe I just put quorum Deo. So, so that's a Latin phrase. I don't normally use, use Latin phrases, but I, 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 hope, I used it in hoping that it will help you remember the concept because it's stuck with me since college. But quorum Deo is simply a phrase that means before God or in the presence of God. And so the final point of application is simply to, to acknowledge or admit or recognize that your and my entire life is lived Quorum Deo. We live before God. From wake to sleep and everything in between. And everything past sleep to wake. Right? Every single moment, waking or sleeping, we live before the face of God, in the presence of God. And so this idea is that our entire life is lived in God's presence before his gaze. This is a reality whether you acknowledge it or not. There's no time or space that he is not aware of or present every action, every word, every thought. God sees and knows. To live before God's face is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. We want to live in God's presence. We want to do it with consistency and with integrity. We want to be who we are at all times. 
Because we are before God at all times. If we think, well, I can act one way here and another way there because God doesn't see, we're, we're foolish. God sees and he knows. We aim to be the same person at all times because God sees us at all times and God has saved us wholly and completely. And all of our time is to be redeemed as his people. And as, as we struggle for this, so, so hopefully you feel the weight of that. Oh my goodness, how is that possible? Right? Our aim to be this same person, what compels us towards this goal, is not what might happen to us when inconsistency shows up. It's not like, well, well, I better be the same person because I don't want inconsistency to then strike and then I'm in trouble. So don't fear what might happen. We aren't afraid of God like he's a father with a bad temper waiting to blow up for us acting one way at work and another way at church. And so we're not like, oh, oh, I better be consistent or else the father is going to lose his temper. Maybe you've had a father like that. We don't, we don't fear God's response for us treating a church member one way and a family member another. Now we can't, we can't like I mentioned, we can't totally eliminate that tension because as long as we're on the earth, we're going to have the body of flesh to contend with. And so there's going to be inconsistencies to one extent for your entire life. Okay, so don't be discouraged, but we, we, we are compelled towards consistency and wholeness. We're, we're compelled towards the complete worship of God with our complete selves, heart, mind, and strength, because God is not a father with a bad temper, but a father who is merciful and gracious, a father who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is, that is your father. That is who you live your life before. Who, knowing you to your core, knowing your deepest, darkest thoughts and actions and attitudes, who, knowing you as you are completely with nothing hidden, still sent his son for you to save you and to make you his own, to adopt you as his son or his daughter. Which is why when our failings loom large, when our sinful tendencies weigh us down, the fear and reverence of God leads us to confession and honesty before this one who already knows us. We don't have to hide. There's freedom for the believer before the Lord because there's forgiveness and mercy and grace. He is the one in heaven who has your heart and very life open before him like a book and loves you anyways, and has committed himself to your completion of this race. He who began a good work, he's not going to give up on you halfway through. Jesus is evidence of that. And so take heart, believer. He's going to finish it. I know some of you may feel like it's, it's never going to happen. You're never going to get there. Well, take heart. God completes what he starts and so as we await that completion, we cast ourselves continually, regularly, repetitively on the mercy of God. On our compassionate Father, we seek forgiveness for our inconsistency. So, so when you're aware of inconsistency, you confess that. Confess it to, to your God and to others in your life. We seek forgiveness and we seek help to worship God as we ought. Well, let, let's pray as we close.